two weeks ago when we spoke, this was all just starting to roil, wasn't it, with all the uh, messiness of the Liz Trust Premiership and all of that. And obviously, you know, the accession of a British Prime Minister, big world news story of, of its own right in the UK. Of course, here in New Zealand, we have shared history and all of that. Uh, but last time around, we talked about whether... Uh, the British media is so hyperactive, particularly with its politics, that there's just so much content that that was part of the reason we ended up seeing it uh, here. And I think it's just got more and more over the last fortnight from the sort of fragmentary stuff like online memes uh, and, and jokes uh, to the, the heavy political reporting through to an entire TV series, uh, which maybe we can talk about later if we've got time. Um, but while this is all fascinating for the journalists and the commentators and the you know the comedians and the satirists and all of those people, this is of course taking place at a time of huge crisis in Britain where the government falling to pieces is actually really serious. So I was wondering as I looked around some of the British media coverage, is there going to be an acknowledgement of this that while the political journalists are loving it and are wrapped up in it, that actually for the people consuming, you know, the British public and the, the world, uh, w- worried about how the British people are getting on, um, whether they would kind of acknowledge that this was all uh, a bit over the top. Uh, and um, so I, I've picked out a few clips of this, but the first one is um, from a podcast which is actually a product of this kind of hyperactivity I'm talking about. It's called The News Agents. It's a new one, which timed itself really well, a daily politics podcast. It was uh, started up by two heavy hitters from the BBC, including one, Emily Maitlis, who kind of left with parting shots at the BBC. Is that that. Prince Andrew? Interview. No, it was uh, she. She was accused of being biased. Actually, talking about Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson, she'd done a, oh, a BBC right. Newsnight show saying, you know, that the country was horrified by what Dominic Cummings had done, breaking the rules. And the BBC told her, no, it's not up to you to say what the mood of the country is. It's your opinion. Don't do that. And she was censured. And she said, this is ridiculous. Um, Opinions divided on that. But she did the McTaggart lecture, this annual thing, where she said, look, the BBC's under attack from people who, uh, you know, political operatives who insist on, um, you know, presenters like me, uh, like Emily Maitlis, being pruned back. So, yeah, she she quit. She was able to form this this podcast. But But didn't she interview Prince Andrew? Uh, it may have been her. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about sure that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. Carry on. New, good name, the news agents. The news agents. Yeah, it's an old school, old school name. But um, then uh, the the thing is that they do this daily podcast every day. They've been talking about this, and their producer and presenter uh, Lewis Goodall was complaining that the 24 hour news cycle that they're trying to work to had shrunk to about six hours every time they recorded a podcast. It was out of date because of the latest turmoil. So th- this is a bit of a long clip, but this is this fellow Lewis Goodall on the news agents. Uh, and I think what he's interest, uh, saying here is interesting in terms of, you know, the fact of, you know, the context in which all this political coverage is, is going on. I think there's been a thing in like in our trade, in political journalism over the last few years, that there's been this sort of like motif that I really hate this kind of, oh, my God, this is crazy. This is mental. This is mad. It's every day is crazy. And I really hate it because I often think like, in in our job, it shouldn't be our job to just sit there sounding and looking stunned. But you know what? I looked at this tonight and this is mad. This really is mental. This is basically the disintegration of a government and a prime minister's authority before our eyes. And when they cannot and the PM cannot in any way corral or exert her authority over our MPs. And this is the net result of what we see. 
then this really is disintegration and it does no one in the country at all any good. Would that be seen as a rare moment of media self-reflection in the coverage of all this? Well, partly, yeah, it is. I mean, in a way, he's saying we shouldn't be catastrophizing this because day after day after day, we can't go on saying, you know, things are mad, things are mental, like he was saying, um, because, uh, you know, th- things, the, the whole cycle does just carry on. But he's also saying it is so extraordinary what's happening that we can't uh, but try and convey that to our audience. But for example, there's a station I actually used to work at years ago, um, Five Live at the BBC. It's 24-hour news and sport. Uh, I listened in on uh, be sun, Saturday night UK and Sunday night, so the morning weekends here, and they were still, uh, you know, after 10 p.m. at night, wall-to-wall coverage of what Boris Johnson was up to. Would he get 100 MPs backing him? You know, MP, pundit after pundit, reporters, commentators, the whole lot. It, it was just uh, extraordinary. And that, that's, you know, these are weekend nights and uh, I couldn't believe it but uh, they also uh, it's the only national BBC network that actually takes um, listeners calls does a bit of sort of talk back Um, and I loved it when uh, the caller Robert phoned in uh, to tell the host Stephen Nolan this I just want to say what a waste of time all of this it's just it's just a sideshow it's irrelevant it's like a walk in the park you've got a war in Ukraine going on you've got people who haven't had electricity gas and water for two or three days and all the economic and political glitterati can do in this country is waffle on something about irrelevant who's going to be the next prime minister you are a disgrace a disgrace right so you don't think it's a news story who the next prime minister is you don't think we should be discussing that no right (laughs) <laughs> uh, fringe view? No, not really. You can be concerned about Ukraine and the government at the same time, can't you? Yeah, I mean, clearly the Prime Minister, who it's going to be, is a big deal, particularly if it's going to be Boris Johnson again, which at that point, um, when that conversation was going on, that was an actual prospect. So, fair enough. But I think the point Robert was making is, so look, we, the listeners, are dealing with a lot of stuff here. He was you know, obviously concerned about Ukraine and gas and electricity and the energy crisis. They've got all of that, which are real present things for them. And uh, so I think it was good that the host, Stephen Nolan, heard that. Uh, you know, the every twist and turn of this political manoeuvring, uh, it's not necessarily in the public's interest for that to be foregrounded all the time. And straight after that, or soon after, rather, uh, Stephen Nolan, the host there, interviewed a, a Welsh MP from the, the Welsh um, political party, Plaid Cymru. I hope I'm getting that correct, uh, who have several MPs in the House of Commons. Um, they were having their annual party conference and uh, Stephen Nolan, the host, was almost sort of gleeful when he introduced saying, oh, well, you picked a bad time to have your own conscience totally overshadowed. No one's paying any attention to you, are they? And she didn't much like that. Uh, but she had a message uh, for him about the way all this was unfolding in the media as well. You know, so much of our politics is br- built upon people saying things that sound good to a certain audience. What sounds good in this day and age might actually be more important or should I say more successful than what reality is? It may be very successful in the next five minutes of its, you know, its, its, its half-life on media, but what are we measuring as success? You know, we've got an economy that's been knocked for six by the fantasy economy, the fantasy budget that the Tories decided to impose upon us back at the end of the last month. Is that a success? And was it true? Yeah, so there she was referring, Liz Savile-Roberts, to um, the fact that 
Liz Truss, when she was Prime Minister in her cabinet, had reportedly been sort of weighing up the newspaper headlines to decide whether they should go with elements of the economic and tax cut package or not. And one particular headline in the Daily Express, uh, allegedly, which um, was a sort of uh, mid-market tabloid paper, which persuaded her that there might be support for what she was doing. Um, and, yeah, that that really is a danger where, um, you know, the... The politicians that know they're in a bit of a hole are turning to the media to try and weigh up what they think the popular thing to do might be to kind of please the crowd via the media is, is a concern. Uh, and there was definitely some of that going on. Well, Colin, you mentioned the memes and that the mockery would be galling to people who are really suffering in the UK at the moment. But isn't that kind of gallows humour from that part of the world? And the UK is noted for savage political satire. It would be weird if there was none of that. Um, yes, it would be because yeah, there's that tradition going all the way back to you know the 1960s and so on of anti-establishment satire. I mean, often from people you know Oxbridge types who are part of the establishment, but you know took it upon themselves to critique it. But yeah, from all the clip shows and quiz shows and stuff on BBC and other channels, all of that, but also online, the people we've never heard of, and one that's sort of sprung to prominence in recent times is uh, someone who, who uh, writes in the guise of uh, a letter from London, uh, from our own correspondent type of thing, uh, posing as the Papua New Guinea Courier's UK correspondent, uh, who's been self-publishing um, stuff on Twitter. So one, for example, that Stephen Fry himself uh, was passing around social media, uh, is yeah, posing as this, this letter from London from a foreign correspondent saying, it's choose a new leader time coming around again in the UK with the Tories selecting another unqualified sociopath to have another go at ramming the iceberg. Um, the Tories are fresh from already trying austerity, hostility, depravity, mockery, criminality and incompetency are rapidly approaching the bottom of their shipping container of defective ideas. Will this be their last? Who knows? One thing for sure, though, the nobodies are now piled very high indeed. Uh, no such thing as the Papua New Guinea Courier's UK reporter. <laughs> no, turns out no. Turns out this is a sort of Twitter, um, a, a Twitter satirist, but someone who's actually written a book anonymously under the guise of the Secret Tory. So, um, but like sort of Steve Braunius's columns, those sort of secret diary type things in book form. But no one knows who's actually done it. But what was funny was that um, Reuters, the world's biggest news agency, actually did a fact check on it to say, is this a legitimate? Uh, foreign correspondent project and uh, they established that there is the PNG Post Courier is a real paper but Reuters found no evidence this uh, column was published on the site uh, rather it, uh, it can be traced back to the satirical website The Secret Tory uh, and uh, there's multiple parody PNG Courier columns on Patreon for fundraising so yeah whoever it is who's doing them they're making a bit of money from online donations and uh, you have the, uh, the glory the badge of honour of having Reuters fact check them uh, you mentioned an entire TV series about the Tories drama. What's that? Oh, yeah, this, that's called This Is England, uh, and you can see the whole thing in one go if you want six-part series on TVNZ+. Uh, it's also screening on TV1 uh, linear style on, I think, Sunday night. So I think they're packaging up two episodes in a go, so I think they're two, two-thirds of the way through it already. But it's made by Sky TV in the UK, so the big beast of pay TV there, which actually makes you know their own dramas, un- unlike our Sky TV. Um, and it, it has a bit of what the Welsh MP we heard earlier, Liz Savile-Roberts, was talking about, about how they were, uh, Boris Johnson and his cronies, during the COVID crisis. This is really a kind of docudrama, uh, sort of fly-on-the-wall type thing. Uh, about how the Johnson government handled the COVID crisis or mishandled it. So here's a clip we have for you. This is featuring uh, Boris Johnson, played by Kenneth Branagh in rather 
heavy makeup, talking to his spin doctors and his health minister as they're searching for some sort of good news to give to the media. 4,000 extra beds. Extra beds on one side. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. I get it. I do. I appreciate it. You've done a great job. If it reaches capacity, which it could, it will be the largest hospital in the world. Yeah, I know, I know. I think we should buck the club for carers. Well, that sounds like we're back in gonorrhea. We, what he does, I think. No, it, it started in Italy. It was a Dutch woman that set up a Facebook group. Oh, God, so now we're going to get Brexit flack as well, are we? No, the sun likes it. I think we should get behind it. I agree. Sounds like a comedy. Did that actually happen? <laughs> well, I don't know. It does say it's a fictionalised account based based on real events, in quote marks. Um, but it does, I think, rely fairly heavily on media reports and stuff that Johnson's enemies leaked out. So things we got to know about the mishandling of the COVID crisis. Um, they actually have a guy in it who looks extra, very much like Rishi Sunak, uh, who I think was the Chancellor at that time, the new Prime Minister. So that's quite weird because Kenneth Branagh doesn't quite... He doesn't quite look like Boris Johnson, but he certainly doesn't look like Kenneth Branagh either. Um, it's very weird watching him doing Johnson, uttering lines of Shakespeare that Kenneth Branagh himself has become, you know, became a famous actor for uh, for uttering. So, I mean, I do wonder, though, whether someone could ever crack at something similar here, uh, dramatising, you know, how our government handled the crisis. We could have, you know, Jennifer Ward-Leland playing Judith Collins or something, <laughs> Melanie Bracewell as Jacinda Ardern, maybe. <laughs> Chris Parker is Chris Hipkins. <laughs> uh, Colin, last month you told me about uh, ZB's Heather Duplessy Allen interviewing a school climate strike organiser. Her name was Izzy Cook. Um, she's 16. And uh, she was mocked on air for the hypocrisy of taking a flight to Fiji, or as Heather Duplessy Allen. Uh, made her feel bad for doing that. You got an update? Yeah, so just, just to remind us of what it was about, so the, the, the Izzy Cook climate strike uh, for schools organiser uh, was being interviewed on uh, the drive show on ZB by Heather Duplessy Allen, who was quizzing her about the six demands that the movement had, one of which was uh, that non-essential air travel uh, should uh, not be taken. So Heather Duplessy Allen uh, asked her very bluntly, um, well, am I allowed to fly to Fiji, Izzy? And this was the response. When was the last time you were on a plane? Mm, I'm not sure. Maybe a few months ago, to be honest. Where'd you go? Fiji. Izzy! (laughs) Izzy! Don't you care about the climate, Izzy? Of course I care about the climate. Not enough. You went to to Fiji. So some people reacted really badly to that, thought that that was, you know, bullying a kid or a young person. Um, Heather Duplessis Allen said on air, look, if if people are representing a national movement, they want to do grown-up politics and be taken seriously, treated as an adult, part of that is facing tough questions, having your own choices scrutinised. So at that time, I remember talking to you about it, saying, hard for me to work out, it was really unfair in terms of broadcasting standards. It wasn't especially classy, it was a bit mean, but was it really unfair? I, I didn't. I didn't think so. Uh, but it turns out some people did make formal complaints and there is now an outcome. Which is? Uh, well, it's not going to the Broadcasting Standards Authority unless the complainants uh, complain because uh, ZB's owner, NZME, have upheld uh, the complaint in, in part on the fairness uh, grounds. So the, the standards for fairness say uh, individuals, particularly children and young people, 
who are featured in a program should not be exploited, humiliated or unfairly identified. Uh, so obviously the last part of that's not, not really an issue. So ZB did say, we reject the claim that this uh, that host treatment amounted to bullying. We don't think that's true. As an organiser of, of a protest movement, she would have expected uh, more so than persons of her own age to... Um, to be, you know, handling media interviews, um, particularly, you know, about the six demands that they had put up themselves. So fair to scrutinise that. But they did say, in, in view of Ms Cook's age and potential vulnerability, both the host, both the host and News Talk ZB acknowledged the embarrassment the segment may have caused, and we apologise to Ms Cook for any harm this may have caused her. So that's gone back to at least two complainants um, that I know of, uh, who, unless they uh, uh, complain or appeal that, uh, it won't be going any further to the uh, Broadcasting Standards Authority. Private radio, good lawyers. But uh, is that the end of the story? Well, I, I would guess so. I mean, there's there's no requirement. I was asked, you know, did they have to apologise on anything like that? In this case, no, because they've upheld the um, the complaint. So unless the complainants want to take it any further, um, you know, that, that will be it. And, uh, yes, I gather that apology, uh, assuming they are true to their word and is made to Ms Cook, that, that probably will be the end of it. And has Heather Duplessy Ellen been mean to anyone else on air lately? Funny you should ask, um, because <laughs> the very day that I was made aware of this uh, re- resolution in, in the, for Izzy Cook, I was listening to her programme, and uh, yeah, in it she was mean, along with her uh, husband, the political editor, Barry Soper, uh, mean to the nation of Rwanda. Rwanda? Mm. What did she have to say about that? It was actually something Barry Soper said. So on the drive show, uh, they do a regular, a daily slot about what's going on in politics uh, because, yeah, Barry's the political editor. So Heather Dupatelan asked Barry Soper if there was anywhere else in the world like New Zealand where we've got now an even split or even a majority of MPs who are women, and this is what happened next. The only other one that's got a domination of women is, uh, of all places, Rwanda. Um, that's the lower house. The upper <laughs> house still is male, but uh, Rwanda is dominated by women. <laughs> It's a bit weird, awkward, but not really offensive. Yeah, I think so. But um, you have to wonder why they found it surprising or actually funny that Rwanda would have lots of women MPs. And there is actually a really good reason for it, which is not at all funny, which is after the genocide in 1994, uh, there was a new regime which put in a 30% quota for MPs, for, for women in parliament. And there was a major push. That was part of a big push. Uh, nation and society-wide to sort of uh, take down patriarchal systems and put women into the justice system, into education, and all fields of of social life. So this has actually been the subject of a lot of um, critical work and documentaries even, because uh, that country in a generation has gone through a quite fundamental uh, feminization in all sorts of ways, and if that's the right term. Um, and in some ways it's been successful, in other ways uh, not, uh, but quite a remarkable thing. So that's, um, you know, that's the background to it. And I would say, you know, some people complained about that Izzy Cook um, interview and said this was actually discrimination or denigration, which is one of the broadcasting stands, a very high bar. So that the, the uh, NZME did, did not um, uphold, and I, I doubt the, the authority would too if it went that far. But Heather Duplessis-Allen was, back in 2018, uh, censured for denigration by the BSA for describing the Pacific Islands as leeches on us. So I think you're in dangerous territory when you sort of, you know... Uh, stereotype uh, a particular country uh, like that. Mm, More ignorance really, Um, but has offence been caused this time? Well, at least to some degree I think, because um, 
when she tried to explain <laughs> why she laughed at this, she only made it worse. So what happened was there was uh, shortly after that bit you heard, there was an ad break. And then Heather Duplessis-Allen came back on air with this. Oh, I've already had a text from the Rwandan honorary consul. Not a joke, telling me off for laughing at Rwanda. It's I'm only laughing at Rwanda because Rwanda's hardly, you know, the best example of, I don't know, you know, things working smoothly. I mean, look at the inflation rate, 24%. Anyway, we'll move right along. Well, that didn't really help, did it? Admitting to using Rwanda as a byword for, for failure. Yeah, I mean, and they've got 24% inflation. She must have looked, looked that up or Google it in the ad break or something. Or the <laughs> things that make Rwanda bad. I, I just don't understand it. But lots of countries have high inflation right now. Argentina, for example, is way worse than that. Um, but it gets a little bit more awkward because the consul is, in fact, Claire Delore, it turns out, who's an ex-RNZ and New Zealand listener magazine journalist, the wife of Sir Don McKinnon, a former Secretary uh, General of the Commonwealth, of which Rwanda is a member. And she is also a regular guest on The Huddle, uh, the discussion section on Heather Duplessis-Allen's own drive show. So she didn't move along, as she said there. So straight after saying that, that she'd been told off in this text message, she, she segued into an item about Air New Zealand's current problems like this. Um, never mind Rwanda. Hello to Rwanda of the South Pacific over here. See what's happened to Air Rwanda, Air New Zealand. Trying to get back from New York to Auckland. They're going to have to stop in Fiji. Of course they are. Well, riffing for the sound of things. Yeah, I mean, Rwanda of the South Pacific. I mean, comparing Air New Zealand to Air Rwanda, I just... I don't know. So again, it seems like she's using it as a synonym for, you know, a failed country or failure. Actually, something she's not, I don't think she's aware of. So Rwanda has actually one of Africa's best airlines, Rwanda Air, it's called. Uh, just won its second best airline staff in Africa award in a row. Uh, and next week, it launches uh, four direct flights a week to London Heathrow. Uh, so you don't have to go via Brussels anymore, straight from Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, to Heathrow. And um, Interestingly, its chief executive is a woman, Yvonne Manzi Makolo, and uh, she has just been made the first woman ever to serve as the chair of IATA, the uh, kind of international umbrella group representing airlines in the, the travel industry. So, you know, another step forward for um, for women in, uh, in Rwanda. Um, so, yeah, n- not quite correct to c- compare Rwandan air services to Air New Zealand's failings in uh, being able to get to uh, New York Colin, a couple of weeks ago we talked about media airing concerns about and also opposition to the creation of the new public media entity. More since then? Yes, indeed, that's ongoing. So uh, the Sunday before last, so just a few days after we last spoke, Tracy Martin, who's the head of the establishment board uh, to drive this transition into the new public media entity, uh, appeared on the News Hub Nation show uh, to respond to fears that um, had been expressed by other media companies that this big so-called behemoth of public media would uh, put pressure on other companies in the struggling New Zealand media sector. Um, And this uh, turned out to be, uh, this discussion with Tracy Martin and a following panel, pretty much the longest piece of coverage or discussion of this public media entity issue anywhere on mainstream media so far outside of, um, I think, Media Watch itself and uh, some Duncan Grieve podcasts on the spin-off. But when asked about the impact on other media, this is what Tracy Martin had to say on News Hub Nation. 
the commercial sector, I suppose, is, is looking at this as TVNZ on steroids. That's really what they are worried about. And the fact is that we are creating a public media entity that is partially supported by commercial revenue. It has to do more for the underserved and underengaged. And I want to it get is to not that. TVNZ I, I do on want steroids. To get to that. How did that go down? Well, not all that well. So she's trying to repeat effectively the message coming from the government that this new public media entity won't compete with other media. It will be serving other audiences. It would also be required in the legislation to collaborate with them, um, which is something the media companies say they don't understand. They don't know what that means. So the message really isn't getting through. And the host of that show, Rebecca Wright, was pretty much asking this question of Tracy Martin and the panellists that followed, you know, why is this necessary? Why does this need to happen? So one of those panellists was Mark Jennings, um, the long-serving TV3 news boss, now the co-editor at the online outlet Newsroom. And he'd said uh, that uh, Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media, the new entity, could collapse parts of the media industry and when... Rebecca Wright asked him, do you understand why the government wants to you know, merge TVNZ and RNZ? This was how he replied. <clears throat> no, I do not understand why. I mean, I think Tracy talked up a big game, talked about children's programming, talked about investment and in infrastructure, but she still hasn't answered the question why. And she talked about that there was concern in the industry, the media industry, about a, a slump, um, and that's true. But if this is the answer to that, um, you know, she should have come to the meeting because this is not the answer. And was there any counter view to Mark Jennings' perspective? Well, there was a, a little bit because another panellist was Dita Deboni of the NBR and she's formerly worked at both TVNZ and RNZ. She expressed, you know, her main concern, she says, is another one that's been spoken about a lot, the differences in culture between RNZ or TVNZ. She described it as, you know, different DNA. So you create a new entity out of effectively, you know, the other two. It's it's going to be awkward uh, as a, an amalgamation uh, or an amalgam. Um, but she said, look, in the end, um, you know, in spite of what objections other media might have, um, the public does deserve a more comprehensive service. Already in New Zealand, media is very well supported by the government through various means, um, through public money. Now, why can't the New Zealand taxpayer have its own entity that is, not, that is only concerned with public broadcasting? Um, I, I just don't see why the private sector are crying so much about it. They already get a lot of help. Yeah, and there was a third panellist on that discussion that was the sort of right-leaning um, pundit Bridget Morton, and she said, look, she just doesn't think this whole thing is going to happen. She's just talked about it in terms of political uh, risk, you know, saying, look, either the government will drop this, uh, which is something she also expressed on Nine to Noon with Catherine Ryan, saying the government will space out things where they're vulnerable to attack in the run-up to an election, uh, or and if there's a change of government, you know, she thinks that will effectively just, just end the idea. That was her view. Well, the opposition keep criticising the cost of ANZPM as wasteful spending, but do we know yet what they would really do? Yeah, interestingly, the week after that, so last Sunday, News Hub Nation got national spokesperson on, Melissa Lee, but they put her in that section of the programme they call The Pitch, which is where they're given five minutes to explain why they should be the minister um, of, you know, the portfolio they're shadowing an opposition. Uh, so the clock was kind of ticking, and the host, Finn Hogan, um, pressed her a lot about, would you kill this merger? Would you reverse it? What would you do? And she didn't want to answer the question directly, but eventually uh, she said, yeah, the government would reverse it.
But you are gunning to take his job, and this merger may be in place when you get it. And I haven't heard your solution to ensuring. Well, that my no solution, my solution, one to stop it, to actually reverse it, and let TVNZ and RNZ continue to do what they do best, and let New Zealand on air be the champions of local content, and actually give them some more money so they can actually produce content that is contested. So it sounds like from everything that you're saying, you are going to move to roll this back if you take government next election. I think so. Yeah, so she was very reluctant to say it, but it does look like they've decided to oppose this. They've, you know, the, the spending is the big thing for them. That's the thing they keep say, uh, repeating in, in interviews, National Party ministers. Uh, and so when Stuff yesterday sought clarification from uh, Ms. Lee, she wasn't quite so definitive. She said, look, if the merger's already complete, she would still want to reverse it, but might not if it wasn't, wasn't too costly. You know, so they said, well, how much would be too much? How much money? What, what, what's the deal here if money's the issue? Uh, but she did reiterate, said, we'll have to think about that at the time. But the position is that we will reverse it because they don't think the merger would have got uh, very far. But, you know, that still leaves in the, que- in the background the fact that a lot of money is still being spent across the board on public media, not just for this new entity sort of hypothecated towards it. So, you know, any new government would have to weigh up all of the spending on on the media across the board because, you know, if, if that's the issue, um, then there's a lot more to look at than, than just the, the public media entity's uh, budget.